like to draw your attention first of all to a couple of verses in Luke 24. Luke's Gospel, this is after Jesus' death. You remember two disciples were on their way home at a place called Emmaus, and the Lord Jesus drew alongside of them, and they didn't recognize him because they were prevented by the Lord's working there. But uh, some striking comments here in verse 27. This is Jesus, and he says, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What a marvelous Bible study that might have been, must have been. Right? You just imagine what it was like to go along and we read of them later saying, did not our hearts burn within us when we heard uh, these things? Uh, but notice, uh, the Lord spoke to them, uh, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, things concerning himself. And then if you go down to verse 44, when he's with the, uh, the same two have, have gone back to the disciples and the other eleven, because without Judas are there. And in verse 44, again Jesus speaking to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That was the threefold division the Jews had of the uh, Old Testament, the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms, really the writings, a uh, number of uh, books. Uh, but I want to draw your attention to the, the fact that in all of the Scriptures there are things about Jesus written. Uh, and that's important, doesn't it, to, to, to realize that in the Scriptures there are things written about the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe sometimes you read the Bible and uh, you're looking for uh, things about Jesus, and you, you wonder, well, where are they? Uh, maybe you read the, uh, some of the long genealogies in the first chapters of Chronicles. You say, well, this is a bit tough, isn't it? And we probably all read them fairly quickly. Uh, where's Jesus there? Well, we see the importance of genealogies. That was important to the Jews, and especially when you get to the tribe of Judah, the genealogy of Jesus. So there is value in those things. Uh, maybe sometimes you read a book like Leviticus and you get all the different sacrifices and they're all a little bit different and you wonder, well, what does this all mean? Do we try and get differences out of these sacrifices? Well, I think one thing you can say that every sacrifice points to Christ, points to the cross, Jesus' death. But of course there are areas uh, where Jesus is revealed, perhaps a, a little clearer, uh, there are direct prophecies concerning the Lord Jesus, beginning in Genesis 3.15. Speak of that as the Proto-Evangelium, the first uh, gospel, if you like, announcement, where uh, Jesus says actually to the, uh, the serpent that the seed of the woman uh, will eventually bruise the head of the serpent. In other words, one will come from the woman, clearly Jesus, who will put Satan out of business. So there's really the beginning of the prophecies concerning Christ. As you go through the Old Testament, there's development of that, the family from which you'll come, from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and eventually David's family, the place of his birth, Bethlehem, and various other details. And then, of course, scriptures that speak of his sufferings, Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. And 
Psalms that speak of his glory, Psalm 110 uh, there. But also we find Jesus in types in the Old Testament. What do we mean by types? Well, uh, there are certain events, people, objects that point to Christ. Now some caution is needed uh, there. I remember once uh, in Bowmanville, I was taking a series midweek uh, on Exodus. As I got toward the details of the tabernacle, I thought, well, perhaps I might need a bit of help there. So I sent for uh, A.W. Pink's book on gleanings from Exodus. Uh, and it was quite a long time coming. And I'd got into the tabernacle before the book arrived, and I was a bit concerned. Had I gone a bit too far in uh, spiritualizing the details of the tabernacle? Uh, but when I opened uh, Pink's book, I was just amazed, almost shocked. He seemed to pretty well typify every tent peg. Uh, so whilst Pink is wonderful when it comes to salvation and the work of God, uh, maybe not so reliable when it comes to some of his uh, typology. Uh, but there are uh, things that we uh, need to be looking for. How do we handle types in the Bible? Some are unmistakable. You read the life of David. Despite his failures, his sins, he's clearly a type of Christ. Christ the King. And in fact, in Ezekiel, a couple of times, and certainly in Ezekiel 34, 23, the coming Messiah is called David. That's a long time after David's death. So clearly, David was a type of Christ. One safe approach is to see how uh, Jesus and the apostles used the Old Testament. We were reminded last Sunday evening, weren't we, of, uh, uh, in Jonah by Peter uh, there that uh, Jesus himself said that Jonah was a type of his own ministry. Jonah was three days, three nights in the belly of the fish, uh, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth. Uh, so Jonah in his seeming death... Uh, and he was swallowed and even cast into the sea. Most of them just would have written off David, uh, Jonah. Uh, but his, there, his seeming death, his resurrection, if you like, were a picture of Jesus' actual death and resurrection. And we have another one here in uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. It's really my text this morning where the Apostle Paul says, For Christ... Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So let's review the original Passover. Israel had been in Egypt for 400 years. They were God's chosen people. They had been promised a land. Uh, but now they were in bondage. They were a nation of slaves. Uh, there and previous attempts to persuade Pharaoh the king to let them go had been unsuccessful and uh, so the Lord begins to deal with them he brings these plagues we're familiar with the ten plagues brought upon uh, Egypt the first three included the the Jews uh, the water turned to blood the frogs uh, the gnats uh, those plagues came on the uh, on the Israelites as well but from the fourth on God put a difference between his people and the Egyptians and the Israelites were spared uh, those 
plagues. The tenth, of course, was the most terrible. The firstborn was to be killed, not only of the animals, but of every family in the land of Egypt. The firstborn uh, was to be uh, killed. Well, how about Israel? Well, they were spared. Again, God made that uh, difference. We read in chapter, uh, where are we, 11, verse 4. Of, uh, of Exodus. Thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt. Every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill. All the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So in this terrible plague where all the firstborn were to die, uh, the Israelites were to be spared. And how were they spared? By the Passover lamb. They were to take that lamb, a lamb that was without blemish, that is, no defects. They had to make sure it wasn't blind, it wasn't lame, it didn't have a torn ear, didn't have any disease as far as they could tell. Uh, it was kept for four days. Uh, perhaps that was a time to more carefully inspect it, to be certain it was clean, was uh, without any uh, blemish. Uh, and then, after four days, it was to be killed. That must have been hard on the families. Imagine if you had a lamb, boys and girls, living with you for four days, and then Dad says, well, we've got to kill this lamb. Uh, it would heighten that sense of sacrifice there, but the lamb had to be uh, taken, had to be killed, and its blood sprinkled around the doorposts, the two side doorposts, the lintel uh, over it. And when the Lord went through the land, bringing death, the Israelites were spared. And how were they spared? By the blood. The Lord said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. So those were the events of the first Passover. And now we'll notice the, the analogy. The expression, Christ our Passover lamb, really demands uh, an extensive uh, parallel, does it not? And we might note, first of all, that we're a nature, by nature, a people in bondage. We may not be in bondage as the Israelites were to another nation in, uh, in Egypt, but we are slaves to sin by nature. And when you hear that, you know, slaves to sin, you might think of people who are addicted to, to drugs or to alcohol or pornography, uh, being slaves to sin. But Jesus says, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin, uh, in the sense of sinning and not be able to overcome it, not be able to be clear uh, from that, uh, you can be a slave to bitterness, to pride, to jealousy, to lust. If you're still living in your sins, they're not forgiven, not taken away by the power of the Lord, you're a slave to sin. You can't set yourself free. You can't break free uh, from yourself, by yourself. None of us can. But notice God puts a difference. He provides a way of deliverance for his chosen people. There is that electing grace. 
Paul writes to the Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 2.13, We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, because beloved of the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit, belief in the truth. God has made us different. God has put a difference between us and others and drawn us to himself, enabled us to hear the gospel and to respond uh, to it. So God has put a difference uh, by his electing grace. And God has provided in Christ a Passover lamb, a lamb without blemish, and that clearly points to the sinlessness of the Lord Jesus Christ. If Jesus had committed sins at all, uh, he'd have to be sacrificed for his own sins. But he had to be clean, pure, sinless in order to lay down his life uh, for his people. Uh, Peter speaks of being redeemed uh, not with corruptible things as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Jesus was sinless. He was pure. There was no one could point a finger at him and accuse him uh, of sin. Now we note that, that for the Israelites, the, the lamb was kept four days. I don't know how we apply that. We could certainly say that the time that Jesus spent on earth uh, enabled people to see that he was without sin. He could look those critical Pharisees in the eye and say, which of you convinces me of sin? Which of you can accuse me of doing anything wrong? Uh, and they couldn't. Well, they could accuse him behind his back and accuse him before uh, Pilate of uh, various things, but uh, they couldn't honestly accuse Jesus of any sin. He was uh, completely uh, pure, uh, free from any sin. And then the lamb was killed. He was killed. Christ died. He didn't faint. A few years ago, most of you would remember Joe Vandenberg. Joe used to go into different churches, but he went into a synagogue, into a, a mosque once, uh, got talking to some of the people, and he invited them to, uh, to pilgrim. Uh, we're actually doing a study in uh, the Bible class on, on Islam. And uh, one particular morning, Haniel Davy uh, was uh, giving uh, the word on uh, Islam, and Joe brought in about three of them. Uh, to hear what he had to say. Uh, they were the Amadean group, a little more uh, polite, we might say, and tolerant than uh, some of the others. Um, but they came for a number of weeks to, to our services. We had them into our own uh, home. Uh, but they wanted us to meet their imam. And uh, so we arranged a, meet arranged a meeting. One, I think it was a Sunday afternoon, Joe and I went along and uh, we sought to debate with their imam. And when we began, he said, listen, we need to lay our foundation there. We're not having any of uh, the, the Apostle Paul. Uh, or Paul, he didn't call him Apostle. We don't know any of Paul's writings. We're just going to stick with the writings about Jesus, with the Gospels. I said, well, that's fair enough. But we didn't get very far because when I spoke of Jesus' death, he said, oh, no, Jesus didn't die. Jesus never died. They denied that. Uh, denied that the gospel spoke of Jesus' uh, death. 
Actually, some Muslims believe that the one who was on the cross was Judas, uh, and others believe, yes, it was Jesus who was crucified, but he didn't die. He just uh, swooned, just fainted, and later on he came, uh, was revived and came back to, uh, to normal uh, life. But they denied the death of Jesus. But Christ died. Matthew 16 talks about the, the Son of Man. He'll be killed. And Jesus predicted it. The apostles spoke of it. They wrote of it. Jesus died. Died passably uh, as a lamb. You see that in Isaiah 53, uh, verse 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, and he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And in verse 9, it clearly says, he died. He died. Uh, Jesus laid down his life. But that was 2,000 years ago, wasn't it? And uh, a good many years after Jesus' death, Paul says, as he writes to the Corinthians, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Jesus needs to be made our Passover lamb, not merely a, a Passover lamb who died 2,000 years ago, fulfilling the pattern, the type that we see in Exodus, uh, but it needs to be uh, closer. He needs to be made ours. How does Jesus become our Passover lamb? Well, we might ask again, how did the Israelites benefit? Well, the first thing we must note is that the blood had to be applied. What could it be if they just brought a lamb into the house and uh, the, the kids would say, oh, Daddy, we, 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 we've taken our lamb, but we don't want to kill it. Uh, or maybe even if the, the father insisted on killing the lamb, but he didn't splash the blood around the door. Uh, the Lord said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. So the blood had to be applied to their houses, and the blood has to be applied to our hearts. How was the application of Christ's blood made? Well, if there's no application, uh, there'll be no salvation. That application, of course, cannot be literal, but it is by faith. It cannot be literal. About uh, 30 or 40 years ago, there was quite a heated controversy in uh, some of the French churches in Quebec uh, and there were people who were insisting uh, of the literal nature, nature of the blood that every drop of that blood had to be collected and taken up to heaven. I wonder how that could possibly uh, come about. Uh, others, to counter that, they overreacted. They said the blood was simply a synonym for the death of Christ. And one said Christ's blood was corruptible like any other. Well, you mustn't forget Psalm 16, you will not suffer your Holy One to see corruption. But we must stay within the bounds of Scripture. It never says that Christ's blood was literally uh, all taken into heaven. But the New Testament does make much of Christ's blood. And of course, building on the foundation of the Old Testament, when we read of the uh, 
description and the application of the Day of Atonement there. Uh, and we read there, it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. <clears throat> Without the shedding of blood, <clears throat> there's no atonement, uh, says the writer uh, to the Hebrews. Peter refers to it, as I've already mentioned, as precious blood. He says we are redeemed by that blood, 1 Peter 1.19. The Apostle Paul says we are justified by his blood, Romans 5.9. He says we are brought near by that blood. Once we were far off, but now we're brought near. We're reconciled by the blood of Christ, Ephesians 2.13. John says we're washed, we're purified by his blood, 1 John 1.7. It is a vital part of the gospel. Real blood, literally shed. But the application of our hearts, of course, cannot be literal. It is the truth of the blood that must be applied, made real to us, applied to our minds, our hearts, our consciences by the Holy Spirit. There's a parallel in Jesus' words uh, in John 6. When you remember, Jesus says in verse 53, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, of course, that's created controversy, hasn't it? Uh, the, the Catholics would speak of transubstantiation, that the, uh, the bread and the wine are, are changed into the literal body and blood uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lutheran position is not much uh, different. But if you read John 6 carefully, you see the spiritual nature of that. In verse 35, for example, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So spiritual hunger is satisfied by coming to Christ. Spiritual thirst is satisfied by believing in Christ. And then again in verse 63 of the same chapter, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Even if you could eat the literal flesh of Christ, it would do you no good. The words that I speak to you are spirit and life. So it is the spiritual application of the blood to our hearts. Uh, we must believe in him. If we don't know that uh, cleansing from sin, we must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his person. It's being divine, God-sent, sinless. Believe in his death, his shed blood, his resurrection. We must believe in these glorious truths. Only then can we face the judgment with confidence. God reminded us there, there is coming a day when we'll stand before the judgment of God. And if we stand before that judgment with our sins still upon us, not taken away, not cleansed by the blood of Christ, we will experience the judgment death, that spiritual death that God will bring upon us. The only way to be free is to have the blood of Christ applied to our hearts 
And as the Lord said to the Israelites, when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. We could apply the same spiritually to the day of judgment. When God sees we are there with the blood of Christ upon us, cleansing us from sin, making us holy, then he'll pass over us. It's the only way we can face the judgment without fear. And if you're here this morning, you don't have that assurance, that confidence that your sins are forgiven, indeed you ought to fear that day of judgment. You ought to fear in a sense every time you go to bed in case you should die during that night because you will stand before the judgment of God unless that blood is on you. No other way will God pass over you and keep you from judgment. So I ask you, is Christ your Passover lamb? Have you come to him in faith, trusting in that finished work of the cross? One more thing, note here. The Israelites had to eat the lamb, again by faith. Speaks of the union with Christ. Speaks of fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Do we daily feed our souls on him? Not just a vague faith in uh, someone who's in heaven. Uh, there is fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. When we draw near to him, when we seek his face in prayer, when we wait upon him, when we read his word, there is that fellowship, that interchange back and forth of uh, words, life, uh, from the Lord. What a blessed thing that we can feed our souls on Christ. We need to do that. As the Israelites did that very literally, we need to do that spiritually. Well then, how should this truth affect our lives? If Christ is our Passover lamb, what should he do to us? Well, it ought to humble us. We do not deserve Salvation, I hope there's no one here that thinks that they deserve salvation. We didn't ask for salvation, yet God had mercy on us. If we came to the point where we did ask the Lord to save, it was only because the Lord had drawn us by the work of his Spirit to make us willing and give us that desire to know him. We didn't seek the Lord of ourselves, yet God had mercy upon us. He put a difference. He worked through his Spirit in our hearts to draw us to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He sovereignly chose us, made us his own people and redeemed us. There's no room for boasting. We can't say, well, wasn't I smart to, to figure these things out? I read the Bible and I understood the way of salvation and asked the Lord to save me. There's no boasting. Paul says, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's never any room for boasting. We should be a humble people, recognizing all that we have is from the Lord, from him alone. But then, if Christ is our Passover lamb, it ought to fill our hearts with praise. When the Israelites had got clear of Egypt, they'd crossed the Red Sea and the Lord had destroyed Pharaoh's army. They had a praise meeting. Read of that in Exodus 15. After they'd got through the Red Sea, Moses and the people of Israel 
sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, I will exalt him. Oh, we ought to be a, a praising uh, people. Uh, amazing the deliverance that God has given to us. Uh, Israel experienced a wonderful uh, deliverance, but ours is greater. They were delivered from the slavery of Egypt and then from the danger of the Egyptian armies chasing after them. But many of them were still rebels. You read the account of Exodus and Numbers and so on, you realize that many of those Israelites, even though they were nominally saved by the Passover lamb and brought out of Egypt, they were still rebels at heart and most of them perished in the wilderness. Uh, very few of them uh, entered the land uh, finally. But God, through Christ, has given us a far greater deliverance. He's delivered us from sin. He's delivered us from the guilt of sin. What a wonderful thing. We can stand before God, we can kneel before God, we can seek the face of the Lord and know that there's no condemnation because our sins have been forgiven. Praise God, he's working in us uh, to deliver us from the power of sin. Uh, how wonderful that is. It's always defective. It won't be perfect until we uh, reach glory. Uh, but there'll be a day when we're delivered from every trace of sin, entirely free from every trace of sin, how wonderful uh, that will be. So we should be a praising people. We should be a rejoicing people, not just when we're together and singing hymns of praise, but we should be a, a people constantly filled with praise and thanksgiving to God for his wonderful work of salvation in our hearts. Trust we are a grateful people. A praising people we should be praising without ceasing. But then we ought to be a holy people. The context of 1 Corinthians 5 is fornication. There's a, a dreadful uh, case there of a man having an immoral relationship with his, says his father's wife, presumably his stepmother, uh, and if you read through Corinthians, there were obviously others who struggle with that. It had been their way of life, and uh, some of them still uh, struggle with it. Uh, and so Paul is dealing with that. Uh, the Passover, as we noticed in the reading, is also the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And leaven, yeast, uh, is clearly a picture of sin. Go back to 1 Corinthians uh, 5 here. Uh, verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. If Christ is our Passover, then sin should be put away as much as is possible. A contemplation of Christ and his sufferings should be a powerful motivation for holiness. If my sins 
brought about Jesus' death. I should hate sin. If my wickedness was laid on him, brought about his sufferings, then we should try and avoid sin as much as possible. If Jesus has loved me enough to die, die for me, then my great desire should be to please him. I've just begun reading again the life of uh, C.T. Studd, who was the founder of the mission that the uh, Pickets are involved in, WEC. Uh, amazing man of God who served the Lord in China and India and the last 20 years of his life in, uh, in Africa. And he made that great statement, if Jesus Christ is God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. And his whole life was one of sacrifice, self-denial, and God blessed him and used him wonderfully. If Jesus is our Passover lamb, then no sacrifice should be too great for us to make for him. So as we will, in a few minutes, come to the Lord's table, let's come humbly. Let's be amazed at God's grace in providing salvation for such rebels. Let's come with hearts full of praise for Christ, our Passover Lamb, and let's determine to live more godly lives for him who loved us and given himself for us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for Christ, our Passover lamb, who was sacrificed for us. And, oh, Father, we thank you that we can know him as our Passover lamb. We can have that blood that he shed applied to our hearts by faith, know the forgiveness of our sins and that fellowship with him. Oh, Father, grant, we pray, that all who are here might come to that place pulling their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, applying that blood to their hearts by faith and having that assurance of the forgiveness of their sins. Hear us, our Father, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.